I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. One day, Chicano squad member Jaime Escalante was at his home in Pasadena, a suburb of Houston, when he heard a knock at the door. He opened it and saw three white Pasadena police officers. The Pasadena PD was looking for uh, this guy that didn't live there, and uh, they didn't know I was a police officer. And they knocked on the door, and they said, if you don't cooperate with us, I'm going to write you tickets. Jaime, who'd spent years dealing with deadly cartels, certainly wasn't about to be intimidated in his own house. I goes, you need to leave. So they go, let me see your driver's license. I said, I ain't showing you shit, dude. I'm inside my house. So, you know, they're calling me all kinds of crap, like wetback, shit like that. And I go, I finally meet the fucking KKK. I said, you motherfuckers, are you the clan? This was in 2005. But even then, Jaime's remark about the KKK wasn't much of an exaggeration. Pasadena, just 25 minutes along Buffalo Bayou from downtown Houston, was a stronghold for the KKK through the 1980s. In 1984, dozens of Klan members from Pasadena staged a march in Austin to the Texas Capitol to protest immigration. Plenty of Pasadena residents could recall white-hooded figures canvassing the neighborhoods throughout the 1980s, 1990s, and well into the 2000s. And there were complaints of discrimination and police mistreatment of minorities, Latinos included. So I start closing the door, he puts his foot in there. And I go, I got a camera right there. I said, you better move your foot out of the way. The officers left to get a search warrant for Jaime's house. When they returned, they started rifling through his belongings. One of the officers found a truck engine that Jaime had been working on in his backyard for a truck he'd been rebuilding. So they go, huh, so you're stealing, where'd you steal that engine from? You have a shop shop down here and all this stuff. Eventually, the officers called for a patrol backup. Patrol unit drives up, tells me, hey, that's a police officer. So they go, you're a police officer? I go, hey, these three guys came in, they've threatened me, they call me racial slurs, so I go to the internal affairs. Jaime went to file a complaint, but was met with pushback. And they're like, you can't complain on them, because they were doing their job. And I said, man, this guy were calling me wetback and all this other stuff. And he goes, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you got to be more professional. Internal affairs had already been waiting for Jaime because it turned out those other officers had already lodged a complaint to HPD about him. You know, they got me for not cooperating with an outside agency and uh, use a racial slur for saying, I finally meet the fucking KKK. So I was relieved of duty. Jaime was suspended for 30 days. I'm Crispel Alonso, 
I'm a comedian and activist, and this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. En esta ciudad, hay necesidad, We told that story about Officer Jaime Escalante being harassed by police for a few reasons. One is just to underscore that even in the 2000s, members of the squad were still encountering racism from some of their own so-called brothers in blue. But also because it highlights just how complicated the subject of policing and racism really is. If you are a brother in blue, but your skin is brown, what color is more important? Policing and racism back in the time and place of our story, in the Houston area of the 80s and 90s, was just as, if not more complicated. And when you're looking back at a squad of Latino police officers who were thrust into the middle of that fray, complicated doesn't even begin to cover it. When Jaime reflects on that time, he remembers some of the positive reactions they'd get from the community while working. They would just walk up to you and tell you that, oh, you and Chicanos, oh my God, we're so proud. And they would hug you and they were like extremely proud that you had all those Mexicans in that squad, you know, and doing the work we were doing. But they weren't universally seen as heroes in their community. Here's Carlos Calvillo, a Houston activist who made a film about the death of Jose Campos Torres. They're just human, you know. You you can't expect any group of officers that have been set up to do something for them all to be perfect. There's going to be saints and sinners, you know. To people who were skeptical of the entire institution of policing, it was no fix to simply put Latino officers in Latino neighborhoods, not if the real problems were systemic to HPD. When the squad members wore the uniform, to some in the community, they were heroes. To others, they were traitors. To some in HPD, they were a model of success. And to others, they were a second-class squad. And as that story with Jaime illustrates, when they took the uniform off, they were still Latino residents in a city that sometimes wasn't safe for them. So, as we've been saying, for the Chicano squad, figuring out where they stood with the community, with the department, and even within the squad itself was fraught. And it was about to get a lot harder. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, one quarter of all homicides in Houston were motivated by or related to drugs. Bobby Gatewood, once one of the Chicano squad's stars, had been given a handful of narco-related homicides that he just couldn't make any headway on. Gatewood was a dang good cop. God damn, he was a good cop. J.J. Garcia is a Houston journalist who covered the Chicano squad extensively for a Spanish newspaper in the 1970s and 80s. In fact, he'd been the one to help give them the name, the Chicano squad. 
we caught up with JJ in his home office. It was in the midst of an extreme cold snap in Houston, and people were calling him to check in. JJ remembers Bobby Gatewood well. Bobby Gatewood was a good kid from the beginning. For most of the decade he'd been on the Chicano squad, this was the general feeling about Bobby. Star athlete? Damn good cop. But he screwed up. He was still very immature. He still wanted to be a playboy. For three years, Bobby had been working the night shift, helping to get the details from witnesses when a body would drop. But then the case would get handed off to someone on the day shift. As a result, it had been years since Bobby had actively investigated homicides, let alone the kind of complicated narco-related homicides that sat on his desk now. Okay, a quick reminder here about the story we're about to tell you. Bobby Gatewood declined to speak to us on the record, so it's impossible to know exactly what was going through his head at this time. What we do know comes from exhaustively researched documents and archives obtained under the Texas Public Information Act. And we also have transcripts of his testimony in court a few years later, which do shed some light on his thinking. Though, of course, a criminal charge and one's fate hanging in the balance can impact a person's memory recall. Throughout this episode, the voices of Bobby Gatewood and other witnesses have been recreated by actors reading from court transcripts. Okay, back to our story. In early 1990, the lingering homicide cases on Bobby's desk likely wouldn't have been the only thing on his mind. He had recently had an encounter with Jim Montero, the former head of the Chicano squad who just retired. Bobby had made Jim a proposal from Jim's court testimony. Well, what he talked about is about going to some stash houses where there would be some money hidden at, and maybe that money could be taken and split. Jim waved it off, but reached out afterwards to another man who Bobby had said was in on the scheme too, one of Bobby's partners on the Chicano squad, John Castillo. To Jim, John Castillo had denied any involvement. But then he called Bobby, upset that he'd been implicated. Bobby, always competitive as an athlete and a detective, wasn't about to get benched. If he was going to get back into good standing at work, he needed to start solving murders. Mr. Gatewood, did you try then at that point to look for or to cultivate Colombian informants if you could find them? Yes, sir. What was the primary reason that you sought out these informants at that time? Uh, because everybody was getting Colombian cases. Before it was just Escalante, but now everybody was getting them. Jaime Escalante was the Chicano squad's current star. He seemed to have a sixth sense when it came to convincing people to give him information. Bobby set out to build a cadre of confidential informants, hoping to once again gain favor as a valuable police detective who could close cases as quickly as Jaime. Well, what I did, knowing that we now were all participating in Colombian killings, um, I would read. And I read one or two of Jaime Escalante's cases for the sole purpose of learning, because the man was good, but learning the way he worked his cases. But Bobby wasn't just reading Jaime's reports. Armed with names and addresses of persons of interest in Jaime's Colombian cases, 
Bobby started to make questionable choices, like visiting potential informants at their homes instead of asking them to come to the office. That kind of personal touch and go get em attitude might seem to fit right in with the Chicano Squad's M.O. But when it came to confidential informants, it was a problem. These weren't regular witnesses. These were people involved in the often violent world of drug cartels. Being seen with a cop could mean a death sentence, and it was dangerous for officers to meet with such potentially violent and lawless people without backup. Jaime had made it a point never to visit informants at their houses. Bobby was playing by his own rules. Do you remember when it was that you first went to meet or when you first met Jorge? I believe it was in September or October of 1990. The story you're about to hear is confusing. It was confusing for us when we heard it. There are several different accounts of how Bobby and Jorge first met. One comes from Bobby Gatewood's sworn testimony and the other from an interview we conducted with Jaime Escalante for this series. Both of these accounts represent a version of the truth, and we found the contradiction to be enlightening. It was clear, after nearly 10 years of being as close as family, that there was a rift in trust beginning to widen within the squad, and it would prove disastrous for nearly everyone. For the purposes of our story, we're going to let you hear both men's accounts in their own words. All right. And do you recall how it was that you found his address? Uh, Jaime Escalante gave it to me. Jorge Pinedo was a DJ and rumored drug dealer with potential ties to the Colombian cartel world. According to Bobby Gatewood's testimony, Jaime had given him Jorge's information. Bobby had then paid a house call to see Jorge, hoping he could shed some light on a homicide case that had gone down at a discotheque. Jaime, however remembers this episode quite differently. I didn't introduce him. What happened was Gatewood did a home invasion robbery at their house. And then that's how they met. Jaime said he had started hearing from his informants that a group of two or three officers were going into the homes of victims and suspects in Jaime's cases and taking their drugs and money. What they were doing was looking at my offense reports and doing like a search warrant going to hit the house. According to Jaime, Bobby had supposedly pulled that scheme at the home of Jorge Pinedo, who Jaime had been watching. According to Jorge, Bobby had shown up at his house and shook him down for valuables after finding dope there. He said Bobby told him there wouldn't be any problems if Jorge fed Bobby intel on drug-related homicides. In this version of the story, Jaime paints a much darker picture, one that has Bobby shaking down informants for drugs and cash and threatening them, and one that gives us insight into just how corrupt things had gotten, as Jaime saw it. Regardless of how Bobby and Jorge met, though, there were two undeniable results. One, Bobby had set his sights on Jorge as a potential informant. Initially, Jorge wasn't interested. And the second thing we know for sure is that his encounter with Jorge would bring Bobby into contact with someone else. 
When you got there, was there anyone else there besides Jorge? Uh, his mother, Ana Maria Jaramillo. Ana Maria Jaramillo, who worked as a property manager, had come to the U.S. more than 20 years before, first living in Los Angeles, and then New York, and then Houston. She was estranged from her husband and had only one child, Jorge, now in his late 20s. And she wasn't sure she wanted her son to talk to the police. According to Ana Maria's testimony, Bobby assured her it would be fine. He would protect Jorge and Jorge would get paid if his information led to arrests. When you left, what did you say to Mrs. Jaramillo? Or what did she say to you? I uh, didn't expect anything. As I was walking out the door, she came up to me and she said, why don't you give me one of your business cards and I'll go ahead and, you know, talk to him and see if we can go ahead and give you a hand. Bobby left his business card and hoped Jorge would come around. Now, after this meeting, did you receive any calls or contact from either Jorge or his mother, Anna Maria, after you had been out there to their house? Yes, sir. Uh, about a week or so later, he called me and said if I had done anything with the case. I said, no, not really. And he told me, why don't you come over and let me take a look at it and see if I can help you. Bobby's visit had paid off. Soon Jorge, Ana Maria's son, started meeting regularly with Bobby Gatewood. Bobby's relationship with Ana Maria also grew. Though Ana Maria offered to give Bobby information on cases, what it seemed promising was turning out to be a waste of time. Bobby was getting nowhere. But he wasn't the only one digging for information. Houston is notorious for sweltering summers, with humidity so high that people resort to showering multiple times a day. The concrete building at 61 Reasoner, Houston Police Department's former headquarters, practically radiates heat, sending it bouncing off of the surrounding concrete streets and glass-walled skyscrapers. But inside the building, things were getting even hotter in the Internal Affairs Division in the summer of 1990. Police officers are human, and just like everybody else, they make mistakes. Yet, when police officers make mistakes, what's at stake are the civil rights, safety, and very lives of the people they work for. Complaints can come from members of the public or other police officers, and the Internal Affairs Division investigates to determine whether a violation occurred. It's also up to Internal Affairs to dole out punishment. In 1977, almost immediately after Jose Campos Torres, who had last been in Houston police custody, was found dead in the bayou, then-Police Chief Pappy Bond established Houston's Internal Affairs Division. Until then, and unlike in other police departments of similar size, there had been no permanent IA division to receive and investigate complaints against officers. Craig Farrell, a criminology professor at Houston Baptist University, was in the police academy when Torres was killed. What was done in Joe Campus Torres was 1,000% wrong. And, you know, the people paid a price for doing it. And I think overwhelmingly the majority of police officers felt they should have. That doesn't mean they all liked the creation of internal affairs. <laughs> they did not. But they all agreed that what happened was wrong. 
And sometime in that sweltering summer of 1990, just before Bobby would connect with Jorge and Ana Maria, someone had tipped off internal affairs that there might be some confidence issues with a sergeant named Bobby Gatewood. The tip went like this, that Bobby Gatewood and John Castillo had been involved in the theft of $300,000 in cash while investigating the double homicide of two Colombian drug dealers and that they'd been involved in other similar thefts. We don't know the source of the tip, but what we do know is that Bobby had had that troubling conversation with Chicano Squad founder Jim Montero only a couple of months earlier. We also know that Jim Montero's stepdaughter was a member of HPD in the Internal Affairs Division. So Internal Affairs were now on the lookout for anything amiss as they dug into Bobby Gatewood's bank accounts, tax filings, and personnel files. It didn't take them long to find something. The night before Halloween in 1989, a few Houston police officers had gone out for a night at Tequila's nightclub to celebrate a birthday. Tequila's was a bar where Bobby Gatewood worked while off-duty from HPD. After a few hours of drinking, a trio of officers left. As they were driving away, Ida Lee Delaney, a 50-year-old black woman, abruptly pulled her car out in front of theirs, and it made the officers furious. For 13 miles, the off-duty officers chased the woman's car down the freeway. A witness who saw the horrifying ordeal play out would later testify that Ida Lee Delaney looked, quote, petrified as she was chased by the men. She pulled out a revolver and fired two shots at the car before pulling over. Then she fired one more shot at one of the officers who fired back, killing her. Two weeks later, Another HPD officer shot and killed a black motorist who was, quote, reaching for something at a traffic stop. The tragedies outraged African Americans in Houston who protested for weeks and called for reform. A year later, in October of 1990, the officer who shot Ida Lee Delaney was preparing for federal trial. One evening, the man who owned tequilas and his girlfriend, who was to be a witness in the case, got into a fight. The girlfriend was arrested. Curiously, Bobby Gatewood checked her out of jail. J.J. Garcia. Gatewood did something really, really, really bad. He got involved against the feds, telling these girls, when the feds investigate you, they talk to you, tell them that you don't know anything. Though the bigger investigation was into the killing of the woman by the off-duty officers, the truth was that some of the officers at Tequilas that night had been breaking department rules by drinking after hours. Bobby didn't want the witness reporting what she'd seen, the officers drinking before Idly Delaney was killed. And he let her know that. According to the transcripts, Bobby Gatewood told the woman that if she testified to after-hours drinking at Tequilas, it would hurt a lot of the officers and that she would, quote, face the heat. Bobby discouraged the woman from being truthful to federal authorities. That pissed off the defense. As J.J. Garcia points out, Bobby's power move backfired. The witness quickly told the feds that Bobby had threatened her. You don't mess with the feds, you know. They're federal, you know. 
They got power. They got a lot of power. He wanted her to lie. Instead, she told on him. She went to the internal affairs office where she was asked to call Bobby. She did. And as officials listened, Bobby Gatewood told her there would be consequences if she testified about what she'd seen. Two weeks later, as the witness wore a wire, Bobby Gatewood again urged her to lie about what she'd seen, this time threatening to, quote, blow her brains out if she didn't. It was enough for internal affairs to make a move. Lieutenant Gamino, who had taken over for Jim Montero as one of the leaders of the Chicano squad, broke the news to them. Bobby had been suspended. Effective immediately, he was relieved of duty pending further investigation. The squad was given few details. Cecil Mosqueda. I said, Lieutenant, anybody can make an accusation. They're going to relieve him just like that? Bobby vehemently denied the accusations against him. And he professed his innocence to the squad, men who'd become like brothers to him as they worked shoulder to shoulder. In April of 1991, Bobby Gatewood was indefinitely suspended without pay, essentially fired, for dishonesty, witness tampering, misconduct, illegal behavior, failing to report crimes, interfering with assigned cases, and intimidation. Bobby was devastated. But more practically, he was also running out of cash. Without his HPD paycheck, he was floundering. Gone were the ski trips and Hawaii vacations, the fancy suits and the jewelry. But Bobby wasn't giving up. His attorney fired off a written appeal to the city's personnel department days later, seeking full reinstatement, back pay, pension benefits, all of it. Well... We were hopefully going to do well there, and I would be back to be what I was. Which was what? Sergeant with the Houston Police Department. That was my main concern. That's what I wanted to do, to go back. That was my life. As Bobby made his official plans to fight his dismissal, he also searched for another way back into the squad's good graces. A lifelong athlete, Bobby was no stranger to the Hail Mary. In the months leading up to his indefinite suspension, he'd gotten closer and closer to Ana Maria Jaramillo, who was always promising to feed him intel on drug dealers. A big win. That's what Bobby needed now. And helping catch some big-time dealers would definitely be a big win. And in April, May, and June, did you have occasion to go there to that high-rise and have dinner with her and visit with her? Yes, sir. Can you tell us, Officer Gatewood, on like a weekly basis during that time period, how often were you seeing Anna Maria? Uh, Sometimes two, sometimes three times a week. I was starting to figure that there was nothing there. I just wanted someone to talk to. You can probably already see where this is going. Their relationship as confidential informant and police officer had started unconventionally and continued to veer more into the gray. She would be the one calling me, asking me to come over, because she might have something for me. And when you got over there, would she have something for you? No. Well, would she want to talk about? Didn't want to do much talking. I'm sorry? She didn't want to do much talking. 
All right, sir. She wanted to have sex. Is that right? That and dinner. In the summer of 1991, he was at Ana Maria's apartment when the subject of Bobby's personal finances came up. How did that subject come up? I believe I had gone over to have dinner with her and she asked me how I was doing. I said, well, you know, hanging in there and of course, talking about my arbitration, which was supposed to, which was postponed. I think it was supposed to go in June, but it was postponed till October. And uh, she said, how are you sitting for money? I said, well, I'm barely making it. And she said, well, do you need any money? I said, well, you know, if you can. In fact, by then, Bobby was in financial freefall. He'd owned a few guns in the past, but pawned them all to buy groceries. He asked Ana Maria if he could borrow money. She handed him a check for $5,000, almost half of what she'd put away in savings. Up to this point, what was your agreement with her as far as what you would do for her in exchange for this information? Well, if we recovered a reward, she would be part of that. She would receive a part of that reward. It might seem idiotic, reckless, unethical, and wildly dangerous in retrospect. But if you believe the testimony Bobby Gatewood and Ana Maria provided at trial, Bobby truly believed there was nothing wrong with his plan. That plan was to get actionable intel from Ana Maria on a Colombian drug deal, then stake out the scene to confirm and tip off the feds. In exchange for the tip, Bobby would receive a percentage of the seizure amount as a reward. Time after time, though, he'd leave Ana Maria's house empty-handed. Finally, a year after they'd first met, Bobby's big gamble seemed to pay off. Now, coming down to September of 91, did there come a time when Ana Maria Jaramillo gave you some information? as far as it related to a person named Carlos. Uh, yes, sir. What information was she able to give you concerning Carlos? She told me that she had been in touch with Carlos and supposedly he had contacts with big dealers. And did this get your attention? Yes, sir. For what reason? Well, she said big dealers. That means eventually he could lead us to where something was at. Ana Maria told Bobby she had met a Colombian cocaine dealer who worked for one of the cartels. He drove a black Ford Bronco and liked hanging out at a topless bar called the Colorado Bar and Grill. Bobby enlisted the help of his cousin, Gilbert Musquiz, and a former police officer, Steve Garza, and the team worked with Ana Maria to hatch a plan. Bobby would go to the bar and see if he could find the Bronco. If it was there, and if they followed Carlos, Maybe he'd lead them to a drug shipment. And if he did, they'd split the reward money. As a result of this information that you got from Ana Maria, did you actually go to the Colorado bar and park there to see if you could spot this vehicle? Yes, sir. Do you remember what happened the first time you went there? I fell asleep and a security guard woke me up, asked me what I was doing there. I said I just had come out from the place to make up an excuse, and we left. Bobby followed Carlos home to his apartment, but then nothing happened. 
The next morning, Ana Maria called Bobby with another tip, and Bobby, Gilbert, and Steve spent the better part of the day following Carlos around. After several hours, they ended up back at Carlos's apartment. Bobby called Ana Maria. What information did she have for you? Just that there was going to be another meeting later on that evening. Just sit tight. Bobby and the guys did for several hours. And then Carlos emerged again and headed out. And again, they followed. This time, Carlos went to the Cattle Guard restaurant, a Western-themed joint that served steaks and buffalo. Ana Maria advised them that the meeting attendees, drug dealers, would be driving pickup trucks. The guys settled in, Bobby in one car, while Steve and Gilbert were in another. But shortly after arriving, something didn't feel right. Then, Ana Maria called Bobby. And she told me that supposedly they were supposed to have a deal out there. What kind of deal? She told me that they had a truck out there with cocaine. Bobby and the other men took stock of the parking lot. Now, this was a steakhouse parking lot in Texas. Of course, there were trucks, at least a dozen of them. But a few of them caught Steve Garza's eyes. That's when Steve told me that he had seen, I believe, three trucks with paper dealer tags. And he said, if there's dope out here, it might be a big deal. Let's get out of here. Paper tags could be a sign that someone was planning on doing something illegal in that lot. But without more specific intel from Ana Maria about exactly what they were walking into, Bobby had to agree with Steve. What was your experience as far as Colombians and Colombian dope dealers? When they have trucks of cocaine at a place, as to whether or not they would be armed? They're going to be armed. They are going to take care of their stuff. Once again, the men left, empty-handed, and worried they may have been seen. And indeed, they had been. That's after the break. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. A couple of weeks went by and Bobby's financial situation only got worse. His car had even been repossessed. In October, Ana Maria called Bobby with yet another tip. A group of Colombians were going to be meeting at the Adamsmark Hotel later that evening. And this time... She had more concrete intel. She told Bobby that they should look for a Suburban and that there would be 114 kilos of cocaine in it. Bobby was all ears. They'd been getting closer and closer. This might finally be the big score. Then he heard a beeper go off in the background of the call. Now at the end, the beeper goes off. You were asked, was that your beeper? And you said yes. Was that your beeper? No, it was Bonnie's beeper. 
What you're hearing is from Ana Maria's testimony in court. You're talking about Agent Asarian? Yes. Agent Asarian worked for the DEA. One day earlier, Ana Maria Jaramillo had been arrested right after wrapping up a face-to-face meeting with Carlos, the big dealer she tipped Bobby off to. As it turns out, Carlos had been a confidential informant all along, and the buyers he'd been ostensibly trying to sell to were DEA agents. For weeks, Bobby had been unknowingly staking out an undercover DEA operation. As Ana Maria was questioned, the agents began going through her purse. They pulled out a business card. Did the agents start asking you about Robert Gatewood when they found that card? Yeah. Ana Maria still had the business card Bobby had given her. The agents no doubt found it very curious that she had a police officer's business card in her wallet. In her testimony, Ana Maria said she assumed the feds knew everything. So she talked. Well, when the federal agents learned that we had some former police officers showing up at these two locations, it did raise some suspicions of of what was going on. This is Robert Stabe, an assistant U.S. attorney in Houston who prosecuted the case. The federal agents had spotted Bobby Gatewood staking out their operations. And they noticed some vehicles in the area that appeared to them to be conducting surveillance. I mean, officers are are always looking for that because drug traffickers will do that, conduct surveillance to see if there are law enforcement in the area or try and figure out who they're meeting as law enforcement. At undercover operations, there are always lots of officers assigned to do surveillance. Drug dealers are known to bring their own security and the officers were doing very dangerous work. The DEA officers watching that night had noticed they weren't alone, but they couldn't yet figure out who was in the other cars or what they wanted. Shortly thereafter, we had an informant come forward that told the federal agents that Gatewood was out looking to rip off drug deals. That informant he's talking about is Ana Maria. And that at least was consistent with what, you know, the officers had seen at these two scenes. Ana Maria filled them in on Bobby's plan, a plan that wasn't about turning in drug dealers for reward money. Ana Maria told the feds that Bobby's plan was to steal the drugs. So as a result of that, we decided to launch an investigation and see if, through that informant, we could corroborate the fact that, that Gatewood and others were interested in trying to steal a shipment of cocaine. And here's where Ana Maria Jaramillo becomes the state's star witness. Did the agents ask you if you would get in touch with Robert Gatewood? At least place a phone call to Robert Gatewood. Yes. And I guess, in general, as best you remember, what were you supposed to tell Robert Gatewood? That we were giving, or Jerry was giving, 114 kilos to some Colombians. And where the drugs were going to be at, 
the trucks that had the drugs and all that and general information on the truck and the license plates and all that. And during these phone calls that you had with Mr. Gatewood, were they tape recorded? Yes, sir. They were. When Bobby hung up, something wasn't sitting right. He was, after all, a veteran homicide detective. He was nervous enough that he called a friend as an insurance policy. I wanted to make sure that he knew where I was at. And also to remember the name of Ana Maria Jaramillo, just in case anything happened to us. Just in case. But whatever fears Bobby had weren't enough to derail the plan and risk throwing away a potentially huge win. Based on Ana Maria's tip about the Adams Mark Hotel, they went out that night in two vehicles once again, with Bobby Gatewood driving alone. The men parked at a strip center near the hotel and watched. For hours, they looked through binoculars and tracked men going in and out of a barbecue joint, the hotel, a sandwich shop. And then they saw it, a Suburban. We were going to see what Gatewood was going to do. It did certainly appear to us that he was going to be there to steal drugs. And on the day when all this happened, we had a number of federal agents out there conducting surveillance. And sure enough, you know, Gatewood Garza and Gilbert Musquez showed up at that location. But Bobby sensed something was off. He had been expecting Colombians, and the man getting out of the Suburban was white. I never knew of Colombians and Anglos associating. They might have, but not to my knowledge. All of a sudden, this is going on. I just started thinking. I, I didn't know if they were setting me up or... I'm not talking about the police. I'm, I'm talking about the Colombians. The driver seemed to be fumbling with the keys and dropped them three times in the parking lot. Then he put them inside the fuel door, right before Bobby's eyes. Bobby called Ana Maria, who suddenly had very helpful information. There was a stash of 114 kilos of cocaine in the Suburban, hidden inside a container. This was it. For hours, the men sat and watched the Suburban, not knowing they were being watched themselves. Initially, Bobby would later say, the plan was to wait until the Suburban left, then follow it and see where it ended up. If it was a warehouse, maybe they'd call the DEA and tell them. If the Suburban went to a residence, they'd go home. But now, Bobby Gatewood changed the plan. Gilbert would get out and peek inside the Suburban and see if he could see the stash of drugs. Gilbert got out and then looked inside of the window of the Suburban. It was empty. He walked away from the vehicle, confused. Bobby's hackles went up. Hurry up and get in, Bobby yelled. But before Gilbert could, someone was shouting Bobby's name. I was looking back because I was backing up, and the next thing I know, I saw a vehicle, and I think I saw another truck coming from another direction. But the next thing I know, they're telling me to put my hands up in the air. Officers with badges and guns and patrol cars screeched to a halt in the parking lot surrounding him. Every national and local agency around seemed to be represented. 
Bobby, Steve, and Gilbert were loaded into patrol cars and taken down to the DEA's headquarters. Bobby had inadvertently wandered into a trap. There was no suburban filled with cocaine. It had all been a ploy, a vice, a sting. The same kind of operation he had run on criminals himself dozens of times before. Word of Bobby's arrest spread quickly among the squad that morning. Very few details were available, but for those who had known Bobby since they were rookies together, the pieces began to make sense. Here's what Cecil thought when he heard the news. Bobby had higher expectations. He wanted something more out of life than, than just getting a regular paycheck. He wanted something else. We were friends, but I'm a simple kind of guy. I, I didn't get into the police department to get whatever I wanted to get. I, I came to do a job, but he had different aspirations of what he wanted to do. And I think great set in. And beneath the crushing disappointment of what Bobby had done was another uncomfortable reality Cecil and the squad were now facing. Following Bobby Gatewood's arrest, the entire Chicano squad was now under investigation by the Feds. That put a big blemish on us, on the squad. It really did. Everything we had built up, it just tore it down because I remember that a lot of people were looking down on us. They thought we were all dirty. A federal grand jury indicted Bobby Gatewood in October of 1992. Bobby was charged with four federal crimes related to possessing cocaine, conspiring to possess it with intent to sell it, and using a cell phone to commit a felony. The feds were accusing Bobby of attempting to rip off Carlos, the drug dealer. Bobby's bond was set at $100,000. His brother paid the non-refundable $10,000 bail, securing Bobby's release from jail, where he had sent so many people before in his days on the squad. Robert Stabe, the assistant U.S. attorney, wasn't positive the case would be a slam dunk. Frankly, in this case, we did not actually have drugs in their hands. In fact, there were no drugs at the scene, despite what Bobby had been told by Ana Maria. So the main crime really was the conspiracy to possess the drugs, and that's harder to prove, and especially since we cannot put drugs right in any of their hands. Turned out, their case on the non-possession charges was strong enough, particularly in the heat of the U.S. war on drugs. In late March of 1993, Bobby Gatewood stood trial. For 12 days, he faced a judge and a jury along with a parade of people who had evidence of his criminal involvement and character witnesses from his past. Ana Maria Jaramillo, whom he'd come to trust, had played him for a fool. And he'd fallen for it. Hard. On April 20th, 1993, Bobby Gatewood was found guilty of the conspiracy and cell phone charges. He was sentenced to the maximum amount based on his conviction, 24 years in prison. Now, I'm in no way defending Bobby Gatewood. But compared to other officers who'd gotten busted for wrongdoing, 
like the Houston police officers who were at Buffalo Bayou the night that Jose Campos Torres was killed. Bobby Gatewood's punishment was much more severe. Think about it. HPD officers were involved in the drowning death of Latino Army veteran Jose Campos Torres, and they got away with slaps on the wrist compared to Bobby Gatewood. Bobby's conviction hit the squad hard. Adrian Garcia was a Houston police officer back then. Even though there may not have been any reason to suspect anybody else in the squad, they all were all looked at, all given a suspicious eye. There's no doubt that the rest of the squad paid an incredible price. For a squad that had spent so long fighting to gain the trust of the community they worked in and the department they worked for, the conviction of Bobby Gatewood was a huge blow, and it laid bare the complex nature of the Chicano squad's mission. For over a decade, they had been tasked with building a bridge between the badge they wore and the barrios they had grown up in. But in the end, they were humans doing a difficult, often traumatic job under a lot of pressure to get it right. And nobody, including the Chicano squad, gets it right all the time. Next time on Chicano Squad. The trust that the squad worked so hard to build has been thrown into question, and it might be at exactly the worst time as Cecil gets a case he can't crack. Meanwhile, the squad deals with another type of betrayal, this time from the Houston Police Department itself. In esta ciudad, hay necesidad. Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our show is produced by Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Associate producers for this episode are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Betubiza. Our show was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Nashat Kurwa and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design from Brandon McFarland. Our theme music was composed by the amazing Brownout. Fact-checking by Charlotte Silver. And a special thanks to the amazing actors who helped us bring these court transcripts to life. Ozzy Rodriguez as Bobby Gatewood, Elliot Kaufman as Jim Montero, Mia Malacone as Ana Maria Jaramillo, and Roy Allen as The Lawyer. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nishat Kurwa for Vox Media and Stacey Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Glijansky for Frequency Machine. I'm Cristela Alonso. If you like this episode and think this story is important, then you obviously have great taste. And one of the best ways to support us is to share it with your family and friends wherever you listen to podcasts. It's also important to share to ensure that stories like these keep getting told. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in episode 10.